Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Four years ago, um, God started to move in the hearts of a handful of people to plant a new church in Madison, Wisconsin, um, as a part of a revival of word and sacrament infused with the Holy Spirit, to be a place where people could come home to Jesus and his church. And as one of those people in whom God was moving, I hopped in a car and drove around the country to raise support, financial support, from people all over the country uh, so that this church could be planted. And people from the West Coast to the East Coast, literally, from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, literally, and from around the world, literally, from other countries around the globe, have given over hundreds of thousands of dollars so that this church could exist. Isn't that amazing? Can you believe that there are people in England who have given money so that we could be here this morning? I could go on. Many more countries, many more states. Isn't that just awesome? But now we're approaching this really special moment on July 1st when we cease to depend upon our external financial ministry partners and become a fully planted church. Yeah, all right. Uh, which means, and I'm going to talk about the details of this a lot more, it means we're fully self-sustaining financially and also in our own leadership and oversight. Um, It's kind of like the moment when a teenager or college student kind of graduates and starts paying their own bills and car insurance and stuff like that. We're about to do that as a a church, uh, kind of leaving our mother churches. Um, We always knew this moment was going to happen around this time in our middle of our third year, and here we are. Oh my gosh. And we're actually doing really well. Praise God. We're ready for it. Woohoo! All right. But apart from the legal financial transition and all the nuts and bolts of that, which there's a town hall coming up in three weeks, which I would love for all of you to be there, even if you're super new to this church, even if you're here for the first time, I would love for you to be there for that. I'll talk about all the details of that, but also this season gives us an amazing opportunity to have a family conversation about a lot of really important stuff that we've never really had the chance to talk about before. For instance, how does our community think about money? We all love talking about money, right? How do we think what theology informs how we think about giving money to the church? Or... What theology is behind the way that we think about the way a church should be governed or led or cared for? Those are really important things. And so our leadership thought this was the perfect opportunity to step way back and be inspired by the beautiful and sweeping biblical vision for stewardship. And I love this because we're not preaching about this right now in order to pay for a building or to make up a deficit in our budget. Um, That could happen one day in the future, but right now we're doing great. We just have an opportunity to have this conversation as a church family. So what I hope we, we can do over the next three weeks is lay a foundation, an imaginative theological foundation that's gonna inform how we think about these things as a church for years to come, so that this church plant, which is now being fully planted, in 100 years can be a mighty oak in the state of Wisconsin and in the city of Madison. That's our vision, that's our dream, amen? So we get a chance to dig deep into the scriptures 
to think about this. What's behind it? And in order to do that, we begin with a biblical theology of stewardship. So the teaching this morning will be like a framework that we are going to think about this morning, and then we're going to apply it to money in the church over the next two weeks. So would you flip with me to your sermon page? And your sermon page has a lot of blanks, and some of you are like, yes, blanks that I get to fill in. And some of you are like, this is terrifying. Like, this is the most insane sermon outline I've ever seen. I promise it'll make sense in a second, okay? But let me pray for us before we dive in. Heavenly Father, open up our eyes to see wondrous things in your law. Lord, help us to see how beautiful the gospel is in its relationship to our humanity and our office of stewardship. In your name we pray, amen. All right, in order to be swept up into the Bible's vision for stewardship, we go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Because it's there we see how from the very beginning, God created humans to be stewards, full stop. So what is a steward? What is a steward? Here's your first blank. A steward is someone who has God-given dominion over an area of God's creation. Your first blank is the word dominion. A steward is someone who has God-given dominion over an area of God's creation. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have dominion? When God says he's given men and women dominion, he means he's giving them full governing authority to rule on his behalf. They don't own creation. It's not theirs, but he's putting them in charge. So a great picture of this is with Joseph in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh gets Joseph. Joseph has all this favor, and Pharaoh exalts Joseph to basically rule over Egypt. He takes off his signet ring, a sign of his authority. He gives it to Joseph, and he says, Joseph, rule. Pharaoh is still Pharaoh, but Joseph is put in charge. He's delegated authority. And that's what God is doing here with Adam and Eve. He's just created the world, which is amazing, and then he creates Adam and Eve, people like us, and he says, hey, I'm putting you in charge. You're going to be my vice regent. You have my authority to lead. You're to rule over the animals, over the sea, the sky, all the earth. Everything is included in that phrase. So that's what a steward is, someone who has dominion, the authority to rule over an area of God's creation. Now, what is the inspired feeling of this? By that I mean, what does someone who is put in this position feel? And here's your two blanks under the first point. Dignity and humility. Number one, dignity. Number two, humility. Dignity because, oh my goodness, what an honor, right? Can you imagine how Joseph must have felt after he'd been a slave, right, in Egypt, to have Pharaoh's signet ring and to basically have full empowered authority in Egypt to rule. How much more insane must it have felt for Adam and Eve to be given dominion over the earth? Can you imagine him being like, wait, I, I have dominion over, say that again? Like everything, you know, <laughs> the entire world? 
And what's especially dignifying about this is that God is giving Adam and Eve full empowered authority. He's not making them slaves to do his bidding. He's actually making them leaders. So I have a church plant coach, and one of the things, uh, the most memorable things I've heard him say, he has a lot of memorable, memorable things he's taught me, is that bad leaders delegate and good leaders empower. And by that he means bad leaders have a person that they're over and they say, here's exactly what I want you to do, exactly. I want you to go do it exactly. I'm gonna check in tomorrow morning and I'm gonna make sure exactly that you did what I said and then I'll tell you what to do next. Which creates an environment of fear, first of all, and micromanaging and anxiety for everybody involved. But good leaders say, here's the vision, here's the parameters of what I want you to stay in, but I'm fully empowering you to do this, so go. Go do it. Then come tell me when you're done. Tell me about it. I'm excited to see what you did with it. God is doing the latter with Adam and Eve. He's empowering them. He's not making them errand boys and errand girls. Okay? For instance, one of Adam's first job is to name the animals. And God's like, that's your job. You're the steward. You do it. God doesn't give him a list of names. He lets Adam do it, which is really important. So there's such dignity to this calling. Oh, my goodness. Adam and Eve are stewards, but at the same time, there is extreme humility attached to the office of steward. Because you're a steward, you're not the king. You're part of the creation, not the creator. You've been empowered with the divine authority to rule over so much, but none of it is yours. Does that make sense? A steward has everything, owns nothing. And what does this all inspire in a steward? Profound humility. I love Psalm 8, which we read this morning, because it's David contemplating his office of being a steward. And what are the emotions that come out of Psalm 8? Dignity and humility. Flip with me to Psalm 8 really quick in your bulletin. What page is it? Flip to page six. Look at this with me. This is King David, a long time after Genesis, talking about this stuff. Verse three, when I look at the heavens, when I'm sitting at summer camp on the edge of the dock and I'm looking at the stars and feeling very philosophical, okay? That's what he's doing right now. The work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you even care for him? Do you feel the humility there? He's thinking, who am I in this vast, beautiful expanse that you would be so attentive to me and give me such a dignified office? David is feeling extremely humble at this point. Now go on, look at verse five. Yet... You've made him just a little lower than heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him uh, 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 dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. That's just reeking with stewardship language, right? Do you feel the dignity there? You kind of feel him get small as he's contemplating his place in the world and so humble, but then you feel his chest kind of broaden as he's like, yet you have given me this office. Absolutely beautiful. I love the pairing of dignity and humility 
in this psalm and in the office of steward because I think that is the secret sauce of our humanity, the combination of dignity and humility that's found nowhere else in the world. To give you an example, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the common thought was that the gods in the mythologies basically needed people to do the work that they didn't like doing. Like, we hate farming, you know, so let's make humans and they can do all our grunt work. And they're utter slaves. There's no dignity. It's all humility, or humiliation, really. In our modern world, it's the opposite. There's no God above us, and so we are all kings and queens and gods and goddesses, right? We do whatever we want. So we have a lot of dignity, but there's no humility, and I think deep down, all humans know that both of those are wrong. Isn't that interesting? When you see humans treated with indignity, you know it's wrong. When you watch the news and you see things happening to people, you say, this is wrong. Humanity has dignity. There's a fundamental difference between me and my dog. (laughs) I love my dog, but there's a difference. While at the same time, you know when humans exalt themselves and start acting like they are fully in charge, you know it's wrong, that people need to be humbled. And I think it's in the office of steward that we see those things combining and they make sense. Do you realize that you are a God-ordained, God-given steward in this world? Do you identify with the royalty of your humanity in the stewardship sense over your body, over your work, over your family, your relationships, your friends, your city, your country. God has empowered you with dominion. Whoa. And I don't care how little of influence you think you have, that's really special. Are you in touch with the dignity of your office? And also, do you realize that none of those things are yours? C.S. Lewis says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in a sense his already. What does that make you? Humble. Are you in touch with the humility of realizing that everything you have is not yours? It's really beautiful. We could go on, but we need to go on. Okay, that's what a steward is. Somebody who has dominion, who feels the dignity of that office, who feels the humility of that office. What does a steward do? Genesis is really clear that a steward does two things. Here's your first one. A steward preserves what they have dominion over. Preserves is your first blank for what a steward does. And I get that word preserves from distilling Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And that little phrase, work and keep, is very, very important. And I think you might have a better word than me, but I, I distilled that to preserve. Here's why. The Hebrew word for work means something like serve or attend to, or maintain. So what does it mean to work or serve in a garden? I'm actually asking this. If I said, here's my garden, can you work it? What are you going to do? You're going to weed it. What else are you going to do? 
You're going to water it. What else are you going to do? Plant new stuff, yeah. You're getting ahead of me a little bit, Bryce. It's coming. Absolutely, all those things, right? Um, the Hebrew word for keep, uh, keep is kind of a lame translation. It's really guard or protect. This is kind of a martial command. So if I gave you my, said this is my garden and I want you to guard it and protect it, what are you going to do? Shoot rabbits, exactly. You live in Madison. Not that we endorse shooting rabbits. We're stewards of God's creation, but yes, build a fence. My wife has many scars on her arms from trying to get the wire stuff around our planters so that rabbits can't decimate our kale, okay? So when you put both of those things together, I want you to tend to it, I want you to serve it, but I also want you to protect it. That's where I get the the word preserve. might not be the best word, but I, I find it helpful to try to find something fresh way to understand it. God is saying, Adam, I planted this garden. It's really great. I'm giving you dominion over it. So you're in charge of it, but I want you to keep it going. I want you to attend to it. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to do that. This is your job. I'm giving this garden in your care. I don't want anyone to come in and destroy it. So keep it going and protect it. Now, what feeling does this inspire? For the person who receives that role, what do you feel? Here's the two feelings I think you feel. Responsibility. Responsibility and watchfulness. Watchfulness is a lame word, but it's the one that I could think of that gets at what I think this is trying to get us to think. Responsibility because, ooh, I'm in charge. Your job is to serve the garden. As a steward, you will feel the proper gravity of your responsibility. You'll wake every, up every morning not just knowing the dignity of your office, but also knowing that, wow, I've got a job to do today. I have purpose, and my job is to work this garden. That's what I'm called to. But also watchfulness, because your job as a steward is to protect. And so as a steward, you are going to be looking for any foxes in the vineyard, any rabbits trying to decimate your kale. You're going to be constantly on the lookout to protect what God has put you in charge of. As a steward, you're thinking, not on my watch, right? You want to come at God's garden, you got to go through me. And I am, what's the, McGregor, Farmer McGregor from, uh, yeah, Marissa, what, yeah. Mr. McGregor, that's right. (laughs) You're Mr. McGregor. (laughs) All right. Yes, amen. All right, hallelujah. Now, because stewardship is so tied to our humanity, it shouldn't shock us that Jesus talked about stewardship constantly. Uh, You don't see it until you do, and then you just see it everywhere. I think like a third of his parables are about someone who's left in charge. And one of the things he talks about all the time is this concept of responsibility and watchfulness. Think of all the times Jesus tells a parable, and there are many, 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 about a master of a house leaving someone in charge, and the command is what? to stay awake, to be on guard, to not get drunk and let the house go to rot. You're in charge. You have no idea when the master of the house is going to come back. So stay on your guard. Be diligent. Attend to the job that the master of the house gave you to do. So have you ever seen something happening to creation, to our ecological world? Have you ever seen something happening in culture? or some beautiful part of the world that you love being attacked or abused or misused and its major chest gets hot 
and it's made you want to get up and do something about it, to protect it and to keep it, you are feeling the human created dignified office of your stewardship. God put that in you. You're a steward. To work and to keep, to preserve what God has made. How beautiful is that? But that's just a part of what a steward does. Bryce had a little, uh, he, he, he gave a little trailer for it earlier here. The second part, here's your second blank for what a steward does. A steward grows what they have dominion over. A steward grows what they have dominion over. And that comes from the famous command in Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. What's so cool about a Christian theology of stewardship is that we're not just preservers of creation. We are not just like maintenance managers, like a rent-a-cop in an old museum that is just there to change the light bulbs every now and then, but like, whoa, I don't touch anything else. That's for other people to decide. Rather, God sets up Adam and Eve. He says, I've given you dominion over this. I want you to protect it and, and serve it, but also I want you to do something with it. I want you to have fun with it. Here is the canvas of the world, paint. Theologians call this verse the cultural mandate because although it is talking about kids being fruitful and multiplying, it's also God charging Adam and Eve to develop creation, to tap into its latent potential, and to take it somewhere. God wants Adam and Eve to do exactly what Bryce said, which is grow the garden of God. This is awesome. I love this. What feeling does this inspire for the steward who is told, grow this? Two feelings, creativity and freedom. Creativity and freedom. This is God sanctifying dreams possibilities, the imagination. This is God sanctifying a right and holy entrepreneurial ambition. Have you ever wondered why so much of children's film and literature is about processing a child's desire to go and do something and be great? I read, uh, Oh, the Places You'll Go this past week. I was watching Ratatouille with my boys, if any of you have ever seen Ratatouille, and uh, it's about this rat who just feels this primal desire to cook high French cooking as a rat. It's like one of my favorite stories ever. I just love it, but because I can never turn off my sermon brain, I was thinking, this rat is fulfilling the cultural mandate. <laughs> That's exactly where this is coming from. This text shows us behind all of those emotions in you, I want to do something unique to me, that I feel like I'm called to do, that's because you're a steward. This passage in Genesis 1 is like God Almighty sitting down with Adam and Eve and reading, oh, the places you'll go. Isn't that amazing? Now, where do we see this in Jesus' teaching? Big time in the parable of the talents, right? For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. 
To one, he gave five talents. And for those of you who are new to this parable of Jesus's, a talent is a monetary sum. It's not like a gifting, but it's also really weird because you can kind of think about it with your talents, but whatever. He's talking about money. To one, he gave five talents. To another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. So there's no competition or comparison here. And then he went away. What happens? Two guys do something. They grow it. They're like, okay, wow, the master entrusted us with this. Let's get creative with it. Different results, whatever. The master doesn't care. He just loves that they were creative with it. The last guy literally digs a hole in the ground and he buries it. And when the master comes back, that guy is rebuked for his slothfulness and his wickedness. This is not a throwaway idea. This is not something new that we're forcing onto the Bible because we're certain types of creative people. Our Lord Jesus himself took this very, very seriously. So what's a steward? A steward is someone who has God-given dominion over an area of creation. What does a steward do? A steward preserves what they're given dominion over, and then also a steward grows, develops what they're given dominion over. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely love this stuff, and if we just sat and thought about the connections between all these ideas in Genesis and our world, and I mean, you, there's so much that could be said, there's so much that should be said about this, but I just want to make three observations about this stuff before we head into money in the church next week, okay? Here's the first one. Our humanity is fundamentally tied to our role as stewards, to all this. I've kind of already said that, but I just want to reiterate that this is what it means to be a human. No matter who you are, whether you would describe yourself as a Christian or not, you are meant to bear God-given authority in this world. You were created for that purpose. You are meant to be a protector a caretaker in this world of all that is beautiful, of all that is good, of all that is true, whether it is visible or invisible, be it ecological or intellectual, be it political or relational. You're a steward. You're meant to grow it. You're meant to protect it. You're meant to take it somewhere. Think of how our, our world is starving to hear this, right? I feel like in our world, we are sifting through the wreckage of these feelings. We all feel these things. The dignity of what it means to be human, the ratatouille desire to do something. It's all there, but we don't know how it goes together. We get the mix wrong. And I think only when you arrive back at Genesis and the God of the Bible does it make sense. And do you know how to put it back together? It all goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's there we really understand. It's there we see where the dignity comes from and the need to cultivate humility. It's there we see that we're in charge, but not really, <laughs> if you know what I mean. The application of this is endless. We're going to specifically think about money in church in the next two weeks, but just for fun, think about parenting if you're a parent. You're a vice regent in your home over your children. The Bible is crystal clear. Children are a blessing from the Lord, 
but they're not yours. You're an ambassador in their life. What are you to do in your home? Preserve, protect, cultivate, serve, and develop. Tap into the latent potential of God's beautiful garden, which is the imagery, by the way, that the Psalms give to children in your house. They're like beautiful vines. Isn't that amazing? Think about your body. The Bible is crystal clear. Your body, your sexuality is a beautiful, beautiful gift, but it is not yours. You are a steward of yourself. How awesome is that? What do you do with it? You have a lot of dignity and humility. You could just go on forever, right? You could pick anything and think, well, that, wow, that's, that applies to this because that's what Genesis 1 and 2 has laid down. Speaking just personally for me, this has been so freeing for me in my job. I'm a pastor of a church plant, and there's so many ways that the mix of this can get wrong in my vocation. But let me just give you one example. I've often struggled with ambition as a pastor because I would love, I love our church as it is, but I struggle between this idea that like I can't want to grow it because that would be like vain and then it would be all about like wanting a big church. But something about me knows it would be wrong for me to just like sit on my laurels and like not try to be excited about doing something new in our church. Oh, this is so freeing to me this week. It's like, oh, I, I am supposed to have a holy and proper joy to want to cultivate and grow whatever garden I'm put in, and this is the one that I've been put in. So just as an example of wherever you're at, this is what it means to be a human. It all comes back to this. Isn't that awesome? Amen? All right, second, sin, here's the bad news, is fundamentally about twisting our role as stewards. All this is in Genesis 1 and 2, and what happens in Genesis 3? A snake slithers into the garden of God. What was Adam supposed to do? Right? That's what Jesus eventually does. That got your attention. I've never done that before. That felt good. <laughs> the snake slithers into the garden of God. Adam is supposed to protect it. And where is he? Oh, he's being deceived and eating apples with his wife, eating fruit with his wife. They forsook their role. And part of what the serpent does is he convinces them that the role of a steward isn't actually that dignifying, it's actually demeaning. And they need to forsake that role and they need to go after the, the real job, if you know what I mean. And in the process, they lose everything. Starts with a garden, in chapters, the world is thorns and thistles. And in the human consciousness, dignity is replaced with shame. Humility is replaced with pride. Responsibility is replaced with carelessness. Freedom is replaced with bondage. It's a tragedy. And from the primacy that this plays in Genesis 3, we learn that a fundamental human sin, I don't know if I'm prepared to say the fundamental human sin, but pretty darn close to it, is going from being a steward to being a squatter. A squatter is somebody who sits on something that's not theirs for long enough until they think, this is mine. We go from feeling the dignity and humility of our calling and being thankful and worshiping God like David and Psalm 8, being like, I cannot believe you've given me this office and this special role, to thinking this is mine. This is for me. 
and I have to talk about Lord of the Rings because stewardship is so huge in Lord of the Rings. But one of the most moving examples of this is in Lord of the Rings when Denethor, who is what? A steward of Gondor, is meant to do exactly what we're talking about. He's meant to attend to the kingdom until the king returns. But he sits on his little pseudo-steward throne for too long. He gets arrogant. And when the king returns, he does not receive the king. He rejects him. And wouldn't you know, the one main parable that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record Jesus telling during Holy Week has to do with this exactly. Mark 12, if you want to look at it with me, this is what Josiah read. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, uh, 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 garden of God, right? And put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. These are the prophets. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent to another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, and listen to the voice of a squatter here, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. God planted a garden, but the people he put in charge became squatters. So it was with Adam and Eve, so it is with Israel, so it is with us. All of us grow up with the same illness. Our default is to think that what all of this is ours. And if you don't think that's true, have you not, is your instinct not a little bit of defensiveness when anybody in church wants to talk about money? Right? Have you ever had anybody in the past year tell you this or any time where you've spoken out loud, you know what, everything I have is not mine at all. I'm just a steward. This is, I'm just amazed. We are trained not only by our culture but also by our sin nature to think like a squatter. Sin is fundamentally about twisting and separating and distancing us from the dignity of our calling as stewardship. And if the evil one can get to the steward, what can he do? He can destroy creation, which is exactly what happens in Genesis 3, which is why the enemy comes after us. All right? That's bad news. You guys want to hear some good news? Oh, this is good. You know what I'm about to say. The gospel is fundamentally about Jesus restoring us as fallen stewards back to the king and back to our divine given office to be stewards. When Jesus is born of Mary in rural, ancient Judea, he is the king stepping into his ravaged garden. He's the undercover boss stepping into the role of a steward among stewards, right? When he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is the king coming to confront the stewards who have become squatters, which is why they didn't like him coming in, just like Denethor doesn't like Aragorn coming in. When Jesus dies on the cross, it's right there in that parable, even the atonement. 
He's the son of the owner of the vineyard, being killed by those who have squatted on his throne. But the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In the mercy and wisdom of God, it was Jesus' death, dying the death of a squatter, that had the power to forgive the fallen stewards. Jesus' blood and his blood alone has the power to restore our shame back to dignity, our pride back to humility, our carelessness back to responsibility that's not afraid of it, and our bondage back to freedom and creativity. Amen? And when Jesus calls together a new people in the church, in a new creation, and he commissions them before his ascension, he is installing a new order of stewards. Stewards of the mysteries of God, as the Apostle Paul says. Theologians have always seen a fundamental link between the cultural mandate of Genesis 1.28 and the Great Commission. Go, fill the earth with the glory of God, subdue chaos, grow my garden, watch over it. I am giving you my authority to rule in it. How awesome is that? So here we are. And what are we doing this morning? Well, for one, we are waiting for the return of the king. Amen? May he come soon and very soon. But until then, we're stewards. Right now, we're in charge. We're responsible. We bear the mantle of God's authority, and before us, we have the charge to preserve and to grow. So we're going to apply these truths, this framework. Wow, what does this mean for our money? That's going to be super fun. Get excited about it. Don't be afraid of it. It's so good. You don't want to be Denethor with your money, and we are so close to the ditch all the time. We should love the opportunity to talk about money in church. You should be asking me, please preach on money more, please. And then we're going to think about the church. Wow, what does it mean that Christ Church is our church? We're stewards of this, this community. We're stewards of our city. But before we do that, we need the gospel, or otherwise it's just going to be legalism, and that's the worst. I hate legalism. So does Jesus. So uh, meditate on this this week. We have the opportunity to think about the same thing for three weeks in a row, which is really fun. Um, meditate on these things, talk about them amongst yourselves, uh, apply them in ways that we won't have an opportunity to do so in church, but let's just open ourselves to the gospel for the rest of the service. Would you pray with me? Lord, when we consider the moon and the stars and the world, spring blossoms, beautiful 80-degree days, growing gardens, the beauty of creation and culture and humanity. Who are we that you created us to be over this? To bear your divine authority. Thank you. God, we repent for the ways that we have twisted our stewardship when we should have been defensive and we let things come into the garden that we were in charge of that we should not have let come in. 
We repent, Lord, of burying things in the ground out of fear, out of sloth. Lord, we repent for ways that we have twisted your creation and abused it or misused it or used it for ourselves. Forgive us. And God, we are overwhelmed that you sent your son to atone for stewards and to die a squatter's death. Lord, we are overwhelmed that you are offering us once more and restoring us to be stewards in this world. Lord, fill us up with the Holy Spirit. Anoint us to fulfill the calling you have given us when you said go. Fill the earth. Preach, teach, disciple, baptize in my name. Subdue chaos and fill the earth with the glory of God. Lord, if you have something for us in the rest of this service, individually, we trust your Holy Spirit to move in us. We long to fulfill that office of steward, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name.